Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kojima again. Thanks for joining us today. And also a big, big thank you to everyone who joined our very first webinar last night. We had about 35 people in total, quite a few clients and potential clients and friends, so people that we know really well. But also more than half were complete strangers, which was even more exciting. So always great to see new Japan property enthusiasts and, of course, talk shop. We did have, as anticipated, some technical issues. We actually spent the first 10, 15 minutes dealing with sound problems for some participants, um, logging out, then in again, fiddling with the software, etc. And I uh, naturally also forgot to click the record button <laughs> again once everything settled down. So the first part of the webinar wasn't actually recorded, but that should be okay for regular listeners because really all we talked about was stuff that we've already discussed many times here in the podcast. So this episode's show notes um, will have the presentation itself, though. The first few slides are more about property investment in general, not Japan-specific. And that one also comes with a spreadsheet that demonstrates some of those concepts, mainly the gap between property prices and rental prices based on market fluctuations over time, and also on locations that are more expensive or, or more affordable. Obviously, the bigger the gap between property and rental prices, the lower the yield percentage is. So that spreadsheet demonstrates that pretty clearly. And there's also going to be a PDF uh, listing Japanese cities sorted by population growth as of the last public population census results, which was back in 2015. There should be an update coming soon. I think the government releases that info every five years. Uh, we were browsing through that PDF when we were discussing location selection in the webinar. And when you review it, just bear in mind that the first page and a half or so that has population growth figures um, in the double or triple digits, that's not real population growth. It's actually artificial conglomeration of smaller townships that have died out into larger metropolitan centers. So local municipalities might simply um, delete smaller towns that have mostly emptied out and reassociate those towns' population with the largest, bigger city in the area. But anything in that list that's under, say, 10% growth is a real growth. And as long as the city is big enough to sustain a tenant base, let's say anything around or over 100,000 people or so, it probably satisfies the population stability checkbox in our location selection criteria. And you'll see the other criteria in the presentation as well. Now, when you listen to this recording uh, of the Q&A session and then the deal analysis section of the webinar, which I have recorded, you may want to also open the deal analysis Excel sheet that we'll put in this episode show notes so you can follow along, um, which is, I have to say, more than the live participants in the webinar were able to do um, at the time because I've completely forgotten to click the share button when I was uh, going through that Excel sheet and I wasn't actually seeing uh, the chat comments from all of them saying, hey, we can't see what we're looking at. But if you do open that Excel sheet when you listen to that section, uh, you should be able to follow along while I rattle on. And the most important takeaway from last night is, for me at least, that we really need a follow-up webinar that focuses more strictly on Q&A and deal analysis, which is what people really want to have more of, and that deserves its own unrushed schedule of, say, hour and a half or two hours. So we'll announce the next webinar very, very soon, and we'll also give you the opportunity to uh, pre-submit your questions in advance again based either on the presentation and the recording that you view and hear today or on any other topics you want to discuss. And that'll also give us the opportunity, uh, give you the opportunity, sorry, to tell us what kind of deals you'd like to review together in the deal analysis section of this next webinar. 
So stay tuned. We'll have a form for you to fill in in our next episode show notes. Do make sure to register your interest and to pre-submit your questions and deal analysis requests again in advance because as we saw yesterday, your questions are complex and interesting enough to fill up the entire webinar time frame. So we do want to make sure that you can get them in there uh, well enough in advance. So here's the recording of yesterday's webinar, Q&A and deal analysis section at least. Be sure to have the deal analysis uh, spreadsheet open in front of you from the show notes as we start discussing the deal analysis in the later part of the uh, section, and I'll be right with you uh, after this. Bear with me. Um, I'll first have a quick look at the uh, question that you've submitted in advance, because we did promise to anyone who pre-registered that we'll get to those, and then I'll, I'll just have a quick look at what you've asked in the chat box there as well. So pre-submitted um, pre questions were as follows. Um, with Japan's population still in decline, flat to negative capital gains in most areas and mid to low single digit returns, uh, why is investing in a single mansion condo a good investment? So we've sort of answered a large parts of this uh, during the webinar and if you listen to our podcast during quite a few of our episodes, um, but I probably break this down uh, into those topics that are contained in it. So. Japan's population is in decline, yes, but that doesn't apply. Uh, and again, I'll refer you to the list of uh, cities that we've just looked at then. Doesn't necessarily apply to all cities and all areas. And in fact, as the lower, as the uh, smaller townships conglomerate into the bigger metropolitan centers, there's actually been, and will probably continue for the next 20, 30 years, quite a bit of growth in those um, regional centers. So declining population, um, Yes, as a rule, but not something that applies to particular locations, only to some of them. Um, flat to negative capital gains, um, again, not exactly the case since 2012, uh, but definitely, as we mentioned, Japan is, a capital, uh, is not a capital growth environment long term, or at least hasn't been since 1991. People purchase here not for capital gains, they purchase here for cash flow. And they purchase here for cash flow in a relatively hassle-free environment, which is something that is quite difficult to um, obtain in other countries. So uh, in the USA, for example, if you want to get closer to the mid, uh, I wouldn't say mid to low necessarily, mid to low maybe Tokyo and Osaka, but mid to high uh, single digit or in some places close to even 10%, um, you'll be purchasing in the USA, for example, you'll be purchasing uh, in a ghetto. In Australia, you might be purchasing uh, in a mining town that might blow over the next day. In Japan, those returns are still very feasible, even in larger metropolitan centers, again, aside from Tokyo and Osaka and a very small selection of other overheated locations. But uh, Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kyoto, Kumamoto, all the places that we've discussed uh, here and in the past offer these sort of returns um, in a very hassle-free, headache-free environment. So the tenants are docile, the professionals are usually professional or at least very honest, um, and it's really uh, hands-off, fully documented, fully legal recourse, and it's also very, very affordable, specifically those single mansion uh, condo units of an older build, so the cash cows that we mentioned again and again, um, they have a very large tenant base available to them. They're very affordable, which means that for the price of a single property, you could buy quite a few of them in Japan, so you could spread and diversify more. Um, so again, affordability, um, hassle-free, relatively high returns for the developed world, um, 
and a lot of people's books, that's a pretty good investment, which is what they come here for. And next question, I'm interested in purchasing an old neglected or abandoned property for my own use in rural or less populated areas of Japan. Tips on how to find these properties would be good. Um, so again, unfortunately, not too many resources out there in English. If you're okay with using Google Translate or uh, can read and write Japanese, there are quite a few. Um, even on the major uh, websites in Japan like Sumo or Homes and so forth, but also in particular areas and those particular areas, real estate agencies that might have websites, you're going to find uh, quite a few of those. Just bear in mind that um, old neglected and abandoned might be very cheap to purchase, but then you have to pour a lot of capital into it. And also bear in mind that a lot of these local sellers and realtors are not really used to dealing with foreigners and they might just freeze on you when you contact them. So. Um, if you don't have a Japanese friend or acquaintance or spouse or partner um, that can contact them initially on your behalf, it's probably a good idea to hire a local representation, either somebody like us, a buyer's agent, or even just an um, English-speaking realtor. There's quite a few of those in Tokyo, uh, maybe again up to five or six of those in Osaka that might be interested in helping you purchasing in the countryside. Um, and if not, um, I guess people like us, buyers, agents, are, are always there to give out a hand. Uh, how can non-Japanese citizens acquire financing to purchase property in Japan at the same terms, interest rates, and loan-to-value ratio as Japanese citizens? Uh, the short answer is they can't. Uh, the only way you can do that is by setting up a company partnering with a local resident or somebody who has a permanent residency at least who's going to be co-signatory to the loan um, and then purchasing I'd say at least one property in cash to place under that structure and start to generate income and then you um, the local lenders will be more accessible. Aside from that, um, being a non-Japanese citizen is not necessarily the problem here, it's more a case of uh, what sort of visa you're holding. So you can be a non-citizen with a permanent residency. That will usually enable you uh, access to local lenders. Um, but they're just, again, like everybody else in Japan, they're very foreigner shy. So it's always a good idea to come in with either a Japanese representative like us or at least a Japanese friend or spouse or partner uh, who can do the talking, reading, and writing and present your case. Uh, taxation of rental income and tax deductions, depreciation, etc. Best structure to hold properties in Japan renovation costs, uh, various possible investment strategies. So we've spoken a bit about investment strategies. Taxation of rental income is just on par with your normal rental in, uh, with your normal income. So if you're not a resident, you're not, you're not up for uh, income tax on your overseas property, only for the uh, property that you've made in Japan. And even if you are a resident uh, for the first five years, they don't care about your overseas income as long as you don't repatriate it and bring it into Japan. In Japan itself, um, under 4,000 US, oh, sorry, under 3,500 US um, annually, net net. So, including all of your purchase and running costs and carrying them forward for three or five years uh, for individuals or companies, you're going to be tax-free from 3,500 US and upwards, or 385,000 Japanese yen. It goes up to 5% at around 2 million yen. It goes up to 10%. So the, the, the brackets, the, the thresholds are pretty convenient compared with a lot of other countries. Um, obviously, um, the best structure to hold properties and depreciation and how to claim all of that thing is something an accountant can advise on. 
and it depends on your um, income stream, whether it's international or only in Japan or only in other countries up to this point. So uh, we're very happy to put you in touch with an accountant, um, but that's something that you'd have to ask them specifically as per your scenario. Um, how to buy a property for personal use for a few weeks out of the year and rent it out the rest of the time, uh, looking to cover operating costs and acquisition price long term. So the best way to do that without jumping too many hoops and applying for uh, hotel licenses and so forth is with monthly rentals, I'd say. So what we've discussed already um, several times. Um, just when you buy the property, again, just before you decide on which one to buy, it's a good idea to, local, uh, to contact a local uh, monthly rental company in that area and ask them what they think about those various properties that you've got lined up and let them tell you which one would be the most attractive for monthly guests. And if that's in line with the property that you're happy to use for your personal use, that'll be the best way to go about it. Um, depending on the city, you could find somebody who actually provides that service um, to non-Japanese, so with English-speaking staff. Um, otherwise, again, we're happy to provide that sort of representation. Uh, purchase an older property in a block. What happens when the block becomes too old and needs to be demolished and a new one needs to be built? Um, once the property hits 40 or 45 years old, um, again, if it's a big concrete monster with a lot of units, it'll probably be renovated uh, to kingdom come sort of thing. The smaller ones, usually the building management company uh, will come up and say that they believe that maintenance and repair costs are going to be increased in the next five to ten years, and they would advise uh, to sell the property. And then they'll try to get a vote from the owners. They need 85% to agree to sell the property, I believe. Um, and that's usually a matter, I mean, if the yields have dropped significantly, again, these older properties will usually be investment properties. So it's very rare that an owner would actually be living in it. And the older, smaller ones are usually investment properties. And investors tend to be um, very yields-oriented. So if the yields are indeed low, they will most likely agree to sell it. And if the yields are not low, then they might hold on to it for a few more years and then sell it. And in any case, if the location is attractive and it's something that you want to go for when you purchase, uh, there's always going to be offers on it. Whether these offers will be profitable or not um, will depend on how many alternative uh, properties are there for sale, how, how much compensation, how many owners they need to compensate, the developer needs to compensate when they buy the property. Uh, and obviously how attractive the location is. Um, for you personally, as the person holding it, it's just a matter of how much income you've managed to generate before the sale. So even if the sale is slightly um, under or close to the price that you've bought, uh, if you've had income from it for five or six or seven years, you're still very much in the green. So that's usually not a huge issue. As a foreign purchaser, can investment property be used as a holiday home accommodation while in Japan? Uh, the answer is yes, as we've just mentioned. Monthly leases is the easiest way to go about that. Are there legal issues regarding staying more than 90 days in a property as a non-owner occupier? And there are no legal issues as far as staying in a property goes, but it's just a matter of your visa condition. If you've got the visa, um, you can stay in. If not, you might be blacklisted by immigration when you leave, but certainly the person leasing the place to you um, is not going to know or care uh, as to your visa status. How much liquid assets are required to get started? Um, I'm assuming you mean liquid funds. Uh, so as we mentioned, you can get started for as low as 2 million yen or 20,000 US. 
not going to be super attractive properties. So they're going to be studio units that are usually 30, 35 years old and in locations. And the city might be good, but uh, it might not be super central locations. And, but you can definitely get started with that uh, if you're okay with relatively smaller yields and then slowly grow from there. Uh, so, sorry, not lower yields, I mean uh, lower prices and lower capital growth potential. So if you're buying a property in central Fukuoka, for example, or even suburban Fukuoka, they've gone up in recent years. They're going to start at about three and a half, four million, so 35, 40,000 US. But other cities that haven't gone up much up in price, if you're okay with that, and yields might be still higher. So in Kumamoto and Sapporo, we can still find things, for example, for um, 20,000, 25,000 US. And they're cash cows. I mean, they generate good income. They just don't go up in value much. Um, how to find vacation property in Minpaku Rental Management Company, especially in small cities? Um, Minpaku specifically, meaning Airbnb or shorter term, really, really short term leases, uh, would very much depend on uh, on your uh, residency. So if you're living in the property or close to it or have staff living in the property or close to it, or the Minpaku company can appoint staff living uh, in the property or close to it, that's doable, but that's probably not going to be the case in smaller cities unless they're very popular tourist locations. Um, with vacation property in a broader sense, again, talking about monthly leases, um, small cities might have one or two of them, but that's usually more play for bigger cities. Um, some of the, if you're in vicinity to a bigger city, so for example, somewhere that's say an hour, hour and a half out of Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, Nagoya, and so forth, um, they might service those areas, but again, they're not going to do that if they don't think that they can uh, place guests easily and profitably enough in them. Uh, so it's a matter of first looking for the smaller city if they have anyone and again having a Japanese speaker on your side or a Japanese professional on your side is usually much easier when you're dealing with smaller cities. Otherwise you go to the next big city and see if they service that particular area. And any tip to find off-market properties for purchase? Um, not that I'm aware of aside from foreclosures, and that's a very time-consuming process in Japan because it's closed auction, so you can't bid and rebid and, and overbid and so forth. You just submit your offer in an envelope uh, to the courthouse, and then if you happen to win, you win, and if somebody came in higher, then they took it. So it takes quite a bit of trial and error uh, before you can find one. The best, closest thing to off-market that I can suggest is to strike a close relationship with regular realtors who might send properties your way before they actually list them uh, on the MLS, on the multi-listing uh, websites and so forth. That's usually the best way to beat the market sort of thing. If you talk about off-market as in uh, off-plan, meaning uh, brand new developments that uh, still haven't been built, then any major developer in Japan can offer those. Any advice on cheap prefab container house building on empty land? Uh, just what we've mentioned. So make sure the layout of the land is actually uh, feasible with that and that the delivery to that location is not going to cost you uh, more than it would to actually construct a normal home there. Uh, what are the top three best loans in Japan for complete foreigners, Japanese visa holders? Okay, so we've sort of mentioned that. Uh, lump sum payback options depend on the lender. I mean, uh, those four that we mentioned, you'll see them in the presentation that we'll share. Uh, very much uh, each have their own terms, so you need to check with them. And market trends update we've mentioned. Uh, if any of you who have asked 
questions via chat are still with us. I'm happy to answer them. Okay, so we have lost some of you. Let me see. And we did answer this. What does your crystal ball say about property market after this coronavirus crisis? Um, depends on how long it lasts, doesn't it? I'm guessing, but this is not a crystal ball, it's just me guessing. Um, coronavirus is going to slowly turn off, turn into a kind of flu, like a thing that we just need to learn to live with. And once panic dies, we're probably going to find that there's not going to be a huge effect on the property market. But Japan-wise specifically, I'm guessing if they do cancel or postpone the Olympics, we're probably going to see quite a few drops in Tokyo and Osaka and the close cities surrounding them at least. So that might be a good time to pull the trigger on some bigger deals. How do you see current economic climate? 6% uh, GDP drop. Uh, for quarter 2019 before corona affecting property market and especially rent prices is just just sorry I've lost that is this just another small bump due to the 2% GST hike and the more serious recession um, um, honestly and this is just my own personal view um, I don't think it will affect rent prices to any uh, serious effect uh, but cost of living is also has been affected more by the GST hike. But as far as GDP and the um, workforce goes, if Japan doesn't do something very serious as far as immigration or natural birth rates is concerned, and they seem to be very reluctant to either provide the facilities to women to want to have more babies or to allow more immigration in, uh, I don't think GDP will grow. So GDP doesn't grow. Generally, people are not making more money in Japan. The workforce is shrinking. That has to affect the property market on the long term. So the cheaper places, I'm guessing, uh, are already as cheap as they can be. But anywhere that's been artificially deflated between 2012 to now, um, unless something really huge changes, is probably going to drop again. So. As a rule, barring some very attractive deals, I would probably steer clear of Tokyo, Osaka, and Yokohama, especially now that the Olympics and the short-term leasing is uh, in question, and stick to other areas, and again, stick to the cash cows. Uh, don't, don't bank on capital growth. Don't assume that your property uh, will go up. Just buy for cash flow in reliable areas that are not necessarily reliant on tourism, and you probably do well. I assume you suggest 20-year-old homes as rent drop and decrease in value as the structure ages. I assume at 20 years old, this levels off. Um, yes, to a point. I mean, between 20 to 30 years old, there's not a huge difference. Once you pass the 35, 40-year-old mark, um, rents don't drop, but drop slightly, but maintenance and repair costs uh, can increase significantly. So, it, but again, it's really a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, smaller structures suffer more from this than larger structures do. And um, good locations suffer less from this than bad locations do. So it's more a case of a deal evaluation. Um, if anybody wants to stick around, we can look at some deal analysis uh, spreadsheets that I'm sorry uh, that I prepared we haven't had time to, or we can postpone that to the next webinar as you wish. 
Um, if you have the money, would you recommend buying individual units or small buildings? It really depends on your, on your criteria. If you're mainly in it for the cash flow, I'd go for individual units. You can get higher cash flow and uh, they're more stable, more reliable because you're paying monthly fees. As far as buildings go, obviously it gives you a lot more creative freedom, but it also takes more capital. So 5, 10, 20 years down the track, you can do a lot of creative things with the property or with the land, but you'll then need to pour more money into it. It also gives you more potential capital growth if you think that might happen. So it's really a matter of personal criteria. If you're looking for stable, reliable, um, sort of quiet cash flow, um, I would definitely go for individual units. If you're looking for more creative uh, freedom, I would go for small buildings. Okay, so Chad, uh, Brian, um, has the increase in sales tax to 10% affected the housing market? Um, not really. I mean, developers usually compensate for that by offering discounts. And if you're purchasing secondhand, then that doesn't really affect you. I mean, the purchase costs are slightly increased. So the uh, property lawyer fee and the real estate agent's fee are slightly increased, but in the grand scheme of uh, the purchase property price, which is not affected by that, for secondhand properties, that's not a serious uh, increase. So it's only affected brand new developments, and then only to a lesser extent because the developers are compensating for that with um, with discounts. Um, what it has affected, um, I guess, is just general economic growth, right? So people are purchasing less because everything costs a bit more, but not necessarily properties, no. Okay, so I'll just check again uh, who, if anyone, is interested in looking at the deal analysis spreadsheet. That's one. Okay, Julian, quickly, I'll do my best, okay? And some more questions if possible. Okay, so I'll quickly go over some deal analysis spreadsheets and then we'll do a bit more Q&A. Um, it's great to have you with us. I'm happy that you're interested. I'm sorry that I took so long. I think I should have taken the uh, questions at the end of it all, but that's okay. We'll do another webinar. Okay, so deal analysis. Um, I just prepared a few uh, spreadsheets for you. These are specifically, so the first um, two or three are pre-deal analysis, so we don't have the exact numbers. We're making assumptions, like you can see here, worst case purchase costs, which can come up to... Um, 20% depending on the uh, price of the property. We'll have these uh, deal analysis templates available for your download as well, so you can fiddle with them as you want. Um, and we also don't know the exact cost of insurance because that's an individual uh, uh, quote for a policy that's issued, but that's usually a very minute amount as you can see. Um, we do know most of the other costs though, so this is relatively, we're assuming worst case, so this is relatively going to be, this yield is going to improve and the purchase costs are going to drop uh, by settlement time, but this is the template that we use for analysis, um, assuming worst case, if the numbers work in this mode, we're quite confident that by settlement they'll still be attractive. So we're going to fill in here um, just today's dollar rate, so let's go with US dollars for the case of this one. So I'm just asking how much is one, I better ask Google 
Australia, because Google Japan gets weird on me. How much is one Japanese yen in U.S. dollars? Grab the latest number we've got and just punch that into our trusty web Excel sheet here. And then we get the prices in U.S. dollars. So this is a Nagoya unit. Note that it's pre-1981, so it's not up to the latest building uh, resistance standards for concrete blocks, but it does look quite nicely. It's 1976. Um, the exterior at least looks like it's been well-maintained. Obviously, we don't know that without looking at the building's renovation history, which is one of the um, most important due diligence items that we want to look at before we purchase. This is a unit in a co-owned block built 1976. It's currently vacant. Um, the realtor is assuming that it's going to generate 48,000 yen a month, so uh, we're talking approximately $451 a month. It's a 16-meter studio, um, 13 minutes walk from the station, so I would definitely, as we've written here, would definitely do a bit more research on average rents before assuming that what the realtor quote uh, is reasonable. But, I mean, if we take the price down to, say, 40,000 yen per month, we're still 7.8% net pre-tax yield, which is quite reasonable uh, for Nagoya. It's actually very attractive for Nagoya these days. Rent management, we're assuming the typical uh, 5%. Building fees, as we can see here, monthly management fee of just under 2,000 yen, and the reserve fund contribution is about 4,600 yen, and it's going to yield this much. So this is a 16-meter studio with a balcony. Balcony is actually facing east, so as far as sunlight goes, that's ideal. East or southeast is best. 13 minutes walk to the nearest subway station. So that's not very ideal. I would definitely, again, check the average rent and also check the average occupancy in that building. Although, judging from the maintenance, that it looks like it, uh, it's well-managed and not got a nice little garden out front and the exterior looks in good shape, they've probably got enough tenants in there um, to assume that it's going to be fairly occupied, just a matter of checking the actual rent price and obviously um, the building renovation history and how much they've got in the reserve funds pool. Post-1981, that's more what we'd expect to see in Nagoya, 6%. Uh, purchase price is a bit higher, so that previous one was 3.8 million yen, about 370,000 US. This one is about 50,000 US. Is occupied, there's a tenant in there, built 1989, up to the latest equidistant standards. Notice that we mentioned there are no inspections if the property is tenanted, so we don't have any pictures of the interior. Um, balcony, not super attractive here. It's facing southwest, so not that much sunlight. But five minutes walk from the nearest subway station. Uh, same ward. Uh, a little bit bigger, about 20 square meters with the balcony. Um, and that's generating what we would expect to see in Nagoya. Again, until we see the renovation history and reserve fund pool status. And in this case... Um, it's tenanted, so we also see, want to see the tenant profile and the tenancy history. We're not going to green light it, but it's good enough to pursue further at least. Kumamoto City, 10.67%, um, which is quite rare in Kumamoto. This one was built 1990, 16-minute walk to the nearest uh, train station or tram station. I'm not sure which one it is in Kumamoto. And this one has been vacant for a while. Um, but quite easily uh, tenanted in Kumamoto. So we've got a, a government welfare uh, program there that guarantees 31000 in rent. 
normal Japanese landlords don't tend to take um, elderly retirees or disabled people and so forth, but we've got good property managers in place that are in uh, close relationship with City uh, Hall, and they provide us with these uh, welfare recipient uh, tenants on a very quick, regular basis. So we're, we know that we can get 31,000 there. Uh, here we've got interior picks as well, so recently renovated, looks to be in good shape. There's a laundry area there, which uh, means that single females would be happy. They don't have to go to a laundromat and do the dirty laundry in public. Um, the flooring was done. I see some brand new lighting fixtures up there. The walls are in good shape. Balcony facing south, not too bad. Uh, separate toilet and bath, which is um, the norm once you get closer to 1990 and is, again, more desired feature for your tenants. Japanese tenants prefer not to have the toilet and the bath in the same room. And new AC unit installed in 2016. We already have the reserve fund information for this building. So slightly depleted reserve fund pool. We've got 10 million in the reserve fund pool which works out to be about $2,000 per unit owner, which is just about 10% of the purchase price. This is one uh, just under 20,000 US. But we had a large renovation in 2012. So the exterior was done, the roof was re-waterproofed, they installed some uh, fancy delivery lockers for the tenants. Sewage general repairs to all common areas. They've already done earthquake repairs after the 2016 earthquakes and replaced the drain pipes. So the fact that the reserve fund pool is depleted here is not something that we'd consider to be a high risk factor. And uh, we're not likely to have any large renovations in the next 10 years or so, so that's fine for us. And um, Sapporo one bedroom. So this one is post settlement. You can see here what we've said. So we assume worst case purchase costs of 20%. In reality, um, they're going to be more like 17 or 18%. This one is even lower because it was sold by the realtor itself, so there's no realtor fee involved. Um, again, slightly over 20,000 US, built 1979, so again, prior to the uh, latest earthquake resistance standards, generating 9.6, but again, uh, bear in mind that in Sapporo, those yields can be fairly superficial. Um, first floor unit, less popular with single females, and we, as we've mentioned, um, although in this particular case, it doesn't look looks like the first floor is not actually ground floor. It's probably um, what we Westerners call the first floor here, so maybe not as bad. Uh, Central City location, seven-minute walk to uh, Odori Park, the city's, uh, one of the city's main parks, two-minute walk to the nearest subway station, hospital, schools, university, a good male tenant base, assuming we maybe cannot get single females for the first floor unit. Tenant is male, 61 years old, self-employed, in residence for a long time. This was purchased in 2018, so in residence six years at the time of purchase. His personal guarantor is even older than him, so we definitely want to have um, uh, full insurance coverage in this one, including death in the property as well. Um, building information, the reserve fund has 41 million, which is 60% of the purchase price if divided between all unit uh, owners. So not a problem there at all. I'm not sure what they've done with the reserve fund so far. Um, renovation history includes water supply system, fire escape. They've done the roof back in 2005. And the, uh, they're planning to do the exterior in 2018. This was January 2018. So they must have done it by now, which would have further depleted, obviously, the reserve fund pool status. 
This one is a house, again, Sapporo City, built 1973, 5 LDK, so huge house, 192 square meters of land, 125 uh, structure, generating 10.6%, single mother plus three children in residence since 2011. Um, obviously, renovation history when you're buying a house is nowhere near as reliable as uh, with a building because there's no building management company and keeping invoices and that sort of thing. So it depends on what the owner tells you. And in any case, with a house this old, you should be expecting uh, regular maintenance and repairs. So your yield should conceivably go down over time. Although, to be honest, um, knock on wood, since 2018 at least, which is not that long, we haven't had anything uh, to repair or maintain in this property. Uh, we've only offered uh, the tenant uh, snow clearing around the house once a year for about 300 bucks. She was very ha happy with that, so hopefully she'll stay for a long time. And the last one here is a Tokyo sublease property built in 1982. Uh, one of the people who's currently um, tuning into the, um, the webinar has just made an offer on this one, a popular area of Tokyo, 5.2, which is exceptional for Tokyo. You don't see that much, and that's on sublease. Once the sublease uh, is canceled and we can start billing the tenant directly, Rent actually goes up to 65,000, and that will bring us up to 6.6, .6, hopefully. Um, we got some information about the tenant, single female, uh, 34 years old, which in Japan is an excellent, excellent profile. Uh, most likely going to stay there for a long time because, unfortunately, they don't get married and they don't tend to get promoted much as single females in Japan at this age and this income level. She has a rent insurance policy in place, a personal guarantor, and a security deposit. And she's also going to be paying a rent renewal, a lease renewal fee to the owner every two years, so a bit of extra income there. Reserved funds looking good-ish, 13% of the purchase price per unit owner. Um, but the roof and the balconies uh, and some of the exterior... Um, Sorry, not the exterior. Uh, the exterior was done back in 1997, but the roof and the balconies were done in 2011. So maybe one big renovation coming in the next few years, but there seemed to be enough funds for at least one big renovation in the reserve fund pool. Uh, the elevator systems were renewed, which is another big item that was done just recently. So we're feeling quite comfortable with this one. And lastly, We've got a Itoshima holiday property. So this one was purchased vacant with an assumed rent price of 30 or 32,000 properties. It's a beach site property. You can see the interior here with a bit of furniture in it and a spectacular view. Uh, what the owner's actually done is uh, converted it into a short-term rental. So that brought his rent price up from 30 to about 45,000 which brought the, uh, brought the uh, return significantly higher. Um, but even if it is leased out on 30 or 32, it's still making a reasonable uh, profit. The advantage, of course, of a, uh, a short-term holiday rental is that, like um, some of the questions you submitted, you can then use the property for your own purposes when you're visiting. So even if you're only getting uh, somewhere between 40 to 50,000 from it, when you're not there, it still more than covers you um, for the price that you don't have to spend on hotels and so forth. This was built in 1991 after the latest earthquake resistance standards and purchase costs ended up being about 17%. And lastly, we've got a Fukuoka building. Uh, 
six units, um, beautiful design. You can see some loft um, loft areas for sleeping here, very modern sort of. It's a single bedroom, but a very uh, nice, modern, airy, breezy, sunny design. Um, six units in the building, purchase price of 45 or just under 46 million yen, built in 2008 and generating around 5.2, which for a central area in Fukuoka City is um, absolutely spectacular. Note, it's a wooden structure, not reinforced concrete. So we, can't, uh, we can assume that will be over time slightly more maintenance, but we've got the advantage of being able to do what we want with the property. Okay, so there you have it. That was the Q&A and deal analysis section from our very first webinar. Hope you enjoyed it. And make sure to watch this space for the announcement of the next one. So you can, again, pre-submit your questions, deal analysis requests in advance and make sure that we actually address them on the day. And do feel free to let us know what you think or ask anything that you want about the presentation and the Excel sheets and the PDF in today's episode show notes as well, either in the comments section of wherever you might have found this podcast or tuning in from. We're always happy to hear from you. And of course, we're even happier if you share this podcast with your own networks or even better, leave us a star rating or a review on the iTunes store, which helps us reach even more people who might benefit from this content. Thanks again for being with us today and for joining our very first webinar. It's been a pleasure as always. And until next time, Yoroshiku.